That's kind of the point that he's been making for now four chapters. You see the Pharisees. Don't be like them. You can imagine how well that went over with the Pharisees. <laughs> so they prided themselves on looking good for all the people around them. And when he constantly is saying to this large crowd of people, you see the Pharisees? Don't do that. So, like, you, you see what they do. That's a great example for you of what not to be. Don't do that. Don't say what they say. Don't pray like they pray. Don't give like they give. And on and on and on. Don't be like the Pharisees. So in Luke chapter 17, Jesus has pointed out the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. And he's about to tell the disciples in very practical and yet certain terms, don't be like them. Don't be self-righteous. And the four things that he talks about, if you lump them all together, here's the central message in all four. It's that if you want to avoid being self-righteous, the way to do that is to walk in humility. So when we talk about um, the things that we're going to talk about today, when we talk about temptations and we talk about forgiveness and we talk about having the right attitude in serving other people and when we talk about our faith needs to increase, the thread that runs through all four is that we need to be people of humility. That's really the thread that runs through all of that. So the first lesson he's going to teach them about humility is that sin and temptation are real and unavoidable. That lesson contains both a warning about the seriousness of sin, and it also contains a warning about the consequences of sin. Both are very well spelled out. Uh, verse 1 says this, he said to his disciples, it's important that we remember that he's not talking to the Pharisees, he's not talking to the sinners, he's talking to his disciples. It's important that we remember that. So he says to his disciples, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks should come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone was hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. That is a serious Serious warning, and it's made more serious by the fact that Jesus is talking to his disciples. And let me break that down a little bit and show you why. First of all, he's warning his disciples about something that is inevitable. The phrase that's used there is emphatic. So it would have been a stern warning if Jesus just simply said, Hey, listen, stumbling blocks or temptations will come. That would have been a serious warning. And all the disciples should have paid attention to that. If he just said, hey, listen, I'm telling you, temptation and sin is going to come. You're going to have opportunity to get tripped up. That would have been a serious warning for them. But he puts greater emphasis on it by stating it as a negative. Now, I, some, I have a lot of kids on my bus who are bilingual. Um, many of them speak two different languages, and many of them speak two different languages very well. I don't know if you realize this, but right now, like, one of the common languages that people are speaking around us is Ukrainian. And you might say, well, why is that? I mean, we understand that we have a, a large Ukrainian population in Parma. Um, in fact, we've kind of named part of Parma Ukrainian village because of the, the population of Ukrainian people who live there. Well, that's not what's going on. What's going on right now is, and you may not realize this, but our community is 
being flooded with refugees from the Ukraine. So I have students on every one of my runs right now who do not speak English. And you can imagine some of the challenges that that brings. Fortunately, the Lord was good to us, at least in transportation, and one of our ladies who works in the office speaks Ukrainian. So we give thanks to God for her because it helps us. But, they, you know, they're, they're, they're bilingual folks. So I am bilingual too. I don't know if you realize this, but your pastor really is brilliant. You should, um, you know, it's Pastor's Appreciation Month. I just want to give you something that you can appreciate. I'm, I'm bilingual. I don't know if you realize that. I can speak English and hillbilly. I mean, I'm really good at both of those languages. I'm fluent in hillbilly. So if you need some hillbilly, I mean, I grew up in the middle of nowhere. And if you need an interpreter, like if you're talking to a hillbilly and you don't know what they're talking about, just let me know. I'll interpret for you. I speak fluent hillbilly. And like I'm the guy that tries not to use double negatives and I use triple negatives, right? So uh, I'm just that guy. So the thing about double negatives is we all understand this. When you use a double negative, the reason you don't want to use a double negative is a double negative what? Becomes an absolute positive. And that's exactly what's happening in this passage. And Jesus is using a double negative to underscore what he's saying. That's saying that this is really the case. And he's drawing attention to it. So maybe he's speaking hillbilly here because he uses a double negative. Let me show you what I mean. So the word that he uses there is the word anindectos. You don't need to know that. It's not on a test. Anindectos is the word that he uses. And it is... So if you have the word impossible, if you have the word possible, you basically put an A on the front of that Greek word possible. So then if you have an A in the front of it, it negates it, which makes it impossible, right? So that's the first thing. It's impossible. It's the exact opposite of possible. That's what this is. It's impossible. So then he says it is impossible that temptations will not come. A double negative. What's the point? By using a double negative, it becomes an absolute positive. And he's underscoring that point. So a translation might read something like this It is absolutely, utterly impossible that stumbling blocks not come. What's the point? It's inevitable, it's unavoidable, it is invariably occurring. In all of our lives. That's the point that he's making. You've heard the sentiment of Benjamin Franklin upon signing the Constitution. You may not have known that that was the context, but you have certainly heard the phrase that Benjamin Franklin said. He signs the, the Constitution and says this In this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. taxes. Did you know that that was the context? No. Signs the Constitution. He says there's nothing certain in this world except for death and taxes. Um, now, that may have been true, old Ben, but there's one thing that you left off the list. Because there is one other thing that is absolutely certain in life. Death and taxes might be certain, but so is temptation. It's absolutely certain to happen. There's no way that you can get around it. Well, then what is a stumbling block? A stumbling block is nothing more than something that's been put in your path that has the potential to trip you up. Now, your path is different than my path. My path is different than your path. 
But one thing I know for certain is that there have been things that have been put in your path that have the potential to trip you up. There are things that are put in my path that have the potential to trip me up. That's what Jesus is saying here. ESV says it like this. It says temptations are sure to come. Now, we all understand that temptation is not a sin, right? So it's inevitable. You're going to be tempted. Temptation is not a sin. You're going to be tempted. So what temptation does for us is it reveals where we're vulnerable. Did you know that? So in some ways, temptation is a little bit of a gift. I know we don't think of it like that, but it really is a gift because it shows me where I'm vulnerable. And this is like one area that I'm not as strong. Now, I might be strong in hundreds of other areas, but in this area, I had to be vulnerable there or I would not be even tempted by it. Right. So there has to be a vulnerability there. And that's why the temptation works in the first place. And now that I know that that's an area of vulnerability, I can now work on building that area up. So I want to give you a couple practical steps toward dealing with temptation. I think that would be helpful for us, right? So now, because you're, you're going to be tempted, you might as well listen. You might as well get some practical steps today because we all deal with temptation. It's common to us all. You cannot get away from it. So I think some practical steps on dealing with temptation would be helpful. The first one is this. Don't deny it. You know, denial... Is not just a river in Egypt. Here's your dad joke for the day. Sometime on Thursday, you'll get that. Denial's not just a river in Egypt. You know, so remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to his disciples about the Pharisees. The Pharisees are there. They're listening to the conversation. They are getting madder and madder every time Jesus talks about them. To another group of people, but he's talking to the disciples about the Pharisees, specifically about their self-righteousness. You got to get the context of this. So he's trying to help his disciples not be like the Pharisees who are self-righteous. And he's talking about humility. And I think the key for us is this. I think that part of what got the Pharisees in trouble was they started to live in denial about the things that they struggled with. Because let's face it, if you are most concerned about what things look like to everyone around you, then you have no other choice than to say, you know what, because I'm so concerned about what everybody else thinks about what's going on in my life, I can't possibly admit that I'm struggling with something. So I put on this mask, I come to church, I do the little Jesus show, I make everybody think that everything's okay, because I can't let them know that I struggle with something because if I struggle with something, it shows an area of weakness. I think part of what got them in trouble was they just wanted to live in denial of, no, I'm good. It sounds like some church people I know. I, I'm not struggling with anything. I'm not struggling with anxiety. I'm not struggling with depression. I'm not struggling with anything. I've got all my stuff together. But the problem is that we are struggling. And by acting like we're not, we start down this path of denial, which is never going to get us where we want to be. 
You've heard me say it before, but it bears repeating. I got stuff. You got, you got stuff. We all got stuff. All God's people got stuff. What does that mean? That means that every last one of us is on the struggle bus. Now, I understand that your ticket to ride the struggle bus very well might be different than every other person in this room. I, I get that. But we all have a ticket to ride the struggle bus. And part of my ticket to ride the struggle bus is part of my story. It's part of my upbringing. It's part of my history. It's part of where I've come from. Um, and part of your reason that you're on the struggle bus is your upbringing, your history, the, all of that stuff. I understand that all that facts factors into it, but we're all on the struggle bus, right? Make no mistake about it. In some way, every last person struggles with something. Do you understand how foolish it would be to act like you have it all together? When everybody knows that you, in fact, struggle with something. And if you want to tell me that you don't struggle with anything then you just call Jesus a liar. a liar because he's the one who said it is inevitable that you're going to struggle. So I would be careful the next time you're like, nope, nope, I don't have to struggle with anything. I'd be careful with that. We tend to want to deny it, right? In fact, it would be foolish because you're certainly not fooling God. You know how crazy that would be to think, you know what, I'm going to act like I've got it all together and I'm going to fool God. Good luck with that. And you know what? You're not even fooling us. Because we know. I got stuff. You got stuff. All God's people got stuff. The only person you're fooling is yourself. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 puts it like this. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So the moment we want to live in denial and be like, no, no, I've got it all together. I've got this figured out. I, I don't, I'm not struggling with anything. I, I, I'm good. Be careful when you think you're standing, lest you fall. Ecclesiastes 1.15, this is one of the verses that's just kind of been like on autoplay in my mind um, for about two weeks now. And it's a newer one. I, I mean, I've read it. I've read the Bible cover to cover multiple times from Genesis to the maps, you know, the entire deal. Um, but for whatever reason, this one's not jumped off the page at me until about two weeks ago. But oh my goodness, has it jumped off the page? And I've been thinking about it. Like there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about this verse. Here's what it says. It's Ecclesiastes 1.15. What is crooked cannot be straightened. And what is lacking Cannot be counted. Think about that. So Ecclesiastes is part of what we would call wisdom literature. So there's wisdom in this. What's this telling us? It's talking about the world that we live in. I got stuff. You got stuff. All God's people got stuff. What Ecclesiastes is telling us, and the wisdom of it is this, that the world that we live in is so crooked that it cannot be straightened out. Try as hard as you want. Have you guys ever been in archery? Have you ever had an arrow that gets bent? Mm -hmm. Like one of the things that's important in archery, um, I used to 
spend a lot of time in archery. One of the things about arrows that get bent is, you know what? You will never get that thing straight. If it has the slightest bend in it, you can do whatever you want. You can get the most sophisticated equipment in the world and try to bend that arrow back. You will never get it straight. Our world is so bent and so crooked that the Bible says it cannot be straightened. And then it goes on to say the things that are lacking, the things that are broken, the things that aren't the way that they're supposed to be are so many that they cannot be counted. Think about what that's telling us about the world that we live in. Here's the point. We live in such a very broken world, and considering the world that we live in, is it any wonder that we have struggles along the way? Second thing, it's a practical step about temptation. Talk it out, don't act it out. Say that with me. Talk it out, don't act it out. First is don't deny it. We've all got struggles. The second is, what do you do with those struggles? You have to talk your struggles out, not act them out. If we're ever gonna find victory over the areas of struggle in our life, we're going to first have to embrace the idea of talking about our struggles. Amen. Do not think for a moment that you are the exception. Or not. As long as we're going to deny the fact that we have struggles, we're not ever going to get victory over them. But the moment we drag the struggle out of the darkness, out of the secrets, and we start talking about the things that we struggle with, you know what happens? You just took your first step toward freedom. Amen. And you took your first step toward <clears throat> victory over that. Talking about struggles will give people the opportunity to show love and support. Why? Because they now know what's going on and they love you anyways. It's not in the notes. It's a freebie, but I just felt prompted to give you this example because I think it's important. So in one of our pastoral assignments, not the one you're thinking of, but a different one. Not that one either, a different one. Um, one of our assignments, the Lord um, just revealed to me one night in a dream some details about one of the ladies who was part of our church. Uh, she was one of my favorites. I'm not supposed to have favorites, but she was one of my favorites. She's a very gracious lady. And um, I, I enjoyed being around her, and the Lord revealed some things about her to me. So when I woke up, there were three there were three parts total. Two of them were about something else that we don't need to talk about right now. But most of it was about this one particular um, lady. And and so I asked the Lord when I woke up from the dream. I said, "Is it all right if I put that in my journal? Um, I just want to have some record of that." And He said, "Yes, you may put that in your journal." And I said, "Can I talk about that?" Um, can I tell anybody about that? Can I tell Danita? And the Lord said to me, um, no, you will not tell Danita. And you can put it in your journal. And when the time's right, you can tell Danita. But now's obviously not that time. So you can write it in your journal. I said, okay, I'll do that. So I wrote all the details down of this dream in my journal. And a year and a half, maybe close to two years goes by. And that lady that the Lord showed me those things about, she called me one day. And she was one of these kind of ladies who had never been out of the county that we were in. And I'm not going to tell you what county that was. It doesn't really matter. She had never been outside of that county. So she called me and she said, I've been driving around that particular county all day long and um, I need to come in and talk to you. She doesn't have an appointment, but she says, I need to come in and talk to you. 
And I said, by all means, please do. I'll be in the office and I'll be here all day. You're welcome to come in any time. She said, well, I'm in at this particular point in the county and, and it'll take me about 20 minutes to get there and I'll see you in 20 minutes. I said, that's great. I'll be here. So I already know why she's coming in. Right? Right. So she comes in the office and she says, um, she just immediately breaks down. She gets in the office, she kind of has her stuff together, gets it across the desk from me and immediately starts sobbing and cannot pull it together. So eventually, I mean, we're probably talking seven to 10 minutes go by before she finally gets this out. She says, I don't even know where to begin. I said, I'll tell you what, how about this? Why don't you not begin and I'll tell you why you're here? She said, you would never guess this about me. Well, let's see. So I went and I pulled my journal off the shelf, still on my shelf, by the way. You're wondering what it looks like, so you can stop in there and it's none of your business, I won't tell you, but it's on my shelf still to this day. I pulled my journal off my shelf, I opened it up to the page, and some of the time I can tell you about exactly why I know what day it was, but I knew exactly what day it was. I opened up my journal to that page, slid across the desk, and I said, that's what you're here to tell me. She reads down through it, and she said, that is word for word what I'm here to tell you. And then she said the funniest thing in the world to me. She said, you're not gonna treat me differently now because of that, right? And I laughed and I said, okay, let's get this straight. When did I write these things down? Two years ago. Have I treated you poorly once in two years? No. And the point that I want you to see is this. She, she said this to me. Um, you know, a couple weeks had passed by and she came back and she was talking to me about all of that. And she said, you know, the thing that is amazing to me is this, that you knew and you loved me anyways. So what's the point? When you start to talk about your struggles, what you're going to find is that people know and they love you anyways. So it gives them the opportunity to provide love and support, but it also provides us with accountability. You know how much easier it is to overcome your struggles when you just sat eyeball to eyeball with somebody and said, this is what I'm struggling with and I need your help. Would you pray for me with this? You know how much easier it is to say, I better not go down that path because now somebody else knows and it keeps us accountable. So guess what? You're not going to be nearly as prone to fall into that temptation because somebody else knows and they're going to hold you accountable. I'm preaching a whole lot better than you're responding. <laughs> I could tell you story after story after story after story. I could tell you stories all day long about people who I know and love who have made a royal mess of their life because instead of talking about their struggle and because they wouldn't talk about their struggle, they started acting on their struggle. And now we're talking about something completely different. It is not a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin to have the struggle. But when you start acting on your struggle, no matter what you do to act upon the struggle, that is sin. Amen. Amen. And you could have avoided it 
if you would have talked about it instead of acting upon it. The third practical thing about temptation and struggle is this. Ask God to reveal and fill the deficit. Ask God to reveal and fill the deficit. I want you to think about temptation in a different way from here on out. Okay, here's the way I want you to think about temptation. I want you to think about temptation like the warning light on the dash of your car. Okay, now, I don't know where, and I told you, I mean, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, and I can speak hillbilly to this day because of where I grew up, and maybe they don't call it that where you're from, but where I grew up from, like, when you're speaking hillbilly, you don't call it a warning light. It's an idiot light. I know that's political. Come on, brother. I, I mean, that's politically incorrect, but I'm telling you, nobody called it. Like, if I would have said, if I went into Napa and said, um, the warning light came on my dash, they would have said, what in the world are you talking about? I don't know what a warning light is. They, but if I went in and said, hey, listen, the idiot light came on in my car, they would say, well, then you're in the right place because we know about idiot lights and we understand why your light came on, especially because anyways, so idiot <laughs> lights are warning lights. Come on, you know what I'm saying. So I want you to think about temptation as a warning light or an if you're from where I came from, an idiot light. Here's the deal. When you are tempted, it is almost guaranteed that the area that you're being tempted in is because of a deficit in your life. Great. It's almost guaranteed. I can really only think of one exception. But it's almost guaranteed that if you're being tempted, that there is some area of deficit in your life. If you're in your car... That warning light might come on because your coolant is low. You need to do something about that. If it's a coolant light that comes on, you probably want to do something pretty fast. Am I right, Chris? Yep. Because if you don't do something pretty fast, your engine will get hot and it'll get hot exactly one time and you'll ruin the thing. So when the coolant thing comes on, you better do something fast. And maybe it's just that the sensors send the bad information, but you better figure it out. Or maybe it's that your oil is too low. So years ago, I was going to speak a revival in somewhere in the hills of West Virginia. And I was driving a piece of junk car. Not much has changed, but I was driving this piece of junk car. And I, I knew that I needed to change the oil because I was, I was probably a thousand miles over what it was supposed to be due anyways. I didn't want to drive to the hills of West Virginia in my piece of junk car with, with dirty oil. So I changed the oil. And I got all the way into West Virginia, which is, I mean, still a good haul, but I get all the way into West Virginia before the oil light comes on. And I'm like, what in the world can that be? I, I mean, I've been driving for hours now, and, and why is the oil light coming on? So I, when the oil light comes on, you need to figure out why the oil light came on, right? There's a reason for that. There's a deficit. So I pulled off the side of the road, because the oil light came on and I popped the hood and I immediately knew why the oil light came on. I didn't put the fill cap back on. There, I mean, there's oil dripping down off the entire engine compartment. There's oil on everything. And there was no oil in my car. Self-lubricating. So I, I took, the, took the dipstick out and like, well, this would be fun. I mean, number one, it was like, blazing hot, but I took the dipstick out 
And I'm like, there is no oil on the dipstick. Why? Because it's all over the engine compartment. What's the point? The reason the light comes on is because there's a deficit. So I need to do something about that right away. Maybe it's transmission fluid. Maybe it's brake fluid in your life. Maybe the temptation in that warning light comes on because you're exhausted. I don't know about you, but I get dangerous when I'm exhausted. And things that I normally would have no problem resisting, when I get exhausted, that's how I know I'm tired. Is because when those temptations start to flare up, I'm like, holy smokes, I'm exhausted. I need to do something about that. Why? Because there's a deficit. Or maybe you just have a physical need. Do you know that if you have a physical need, that it'll cause temptation to show up in your life? You'll be tempted to do things because you have physical need? Or maybe you're just lonely. I'm telling you, I am preaching a whole lot better than you're responding. <laughs> We're Did you know it. that if you, if you don't get around other believers and you don't fellowship with other people, if you don't make gathering together with them and worshiping together with them and studying the word of God together with them, if you don't make that a priority, you'll get lonely. And how do you know that you're lonely? You'll start to be tempted. Amen. You'll be tempted to do stupid things that you normally would have had. No problem finding victory over, but you'll be tempted in that area because you're lonely. What's my point? Most often, it is guaranteed that if you're being tempted, it's because of an area of deficit in your life. And if you would ask God to reveal the deficit, then guess what? He only reveals what he's willing to heal. And in this case, he only reveals what he's willing to, to fill up. So if you have a deficit in your life, if you come to him and say, God, I don't know why I'm struggling with this temptation uh, there's got to be something that's lacking in my life. He's going to do two things. First thing he's going to do is point out what's lacking in your life. He's going to say, this is what, what's lacking. And not only will he point out what's lacking, guess what he'll do? He'll fill, fill it up. up. And guess what? You just found victory over temptation. Amen. If you're um, driving home, after having dinner at a five-star restaurant, I don't know about you, Danita's not a foodie. Danita, it is honestly true of her. She eats to live. I don't understand that at all. <laughs> That's just foreign to me. It's like I'm married to an alien. I mean, it's just, I, I have no concept for that because I, and Danita will tell you this is true, I live to eat. I am a foodie through and through. So like Kalen's a foodie through and through. So we went to Tony Paco's. We were at Pastors and Spouses Retreat earlier um, this weekend, and we were to, we went to Tony Paco's. So like, Danita's the kind of person, we walk into Tony Paco's, and she's like, have I ever eaten here before? I'm the kind of person that said, oh yeah, you've eaten here before. These are the people who were present. This is what I ordered last time, and I'm gonna order it again. And it's been 20 years. So, well, not quite 20, close to it. Been close to 20 years since we've eaten at Tony Paco's, but I knew exactly what I ordered. Why? Because I'm a foodie. So maybe this is just a foodie thing. I don't think it is. But like if I've been to a five-star restaurant, I can tell you exactly what I ordered. I can tell you how it tasted. I can tell you if I would order it again. It's all filed away in my brain. And if this is just a foodie thing, then I'm sorry, it won't connect. But I think you can relate to this. So you're at a five-star restaurant. You've taken time to look through every item on the menu. You've picked the thing that you thought was the most appealing. You've ordered it, it comes out exactly the way that you wanted it prepared. You enjoy the entire thing, 
You get all the sauce off the plate. You eat every morsel off the plate, and it is good. How many of you know that when you jump in your car after eating a meal like that at a five-star restaurant, and you're driving down the road, and you see the glow of the golden arches? <laughs> how many of you know that the glow of the golden arches is not going to be tempting to you. In fact, you might even find the thought of the golden arches repulsive because you're filled with all so, the very best that you could have. The glow of the golden arches means nothing to you if you're filled with the very best that you could have. Now, let's just say that you go to the five-star restaurant and then you don't eat anything for two weeks. And you drive by the glow of the golden arches. How many of you know that in the moment you drive by the glow of the golden arches, that your car is going to go onto autopilot and you are going to stop at the golden arches and you're going to say, I want 15 Big Macs, 15 large fries, and 15 Cokes, and I'm going to drink it all. How many of you understand that if you've not eaten in two weeks, the glow of the golden arches will be a temptation that will be very hard for you to resist? What's the point? If we're filled with the things that are the very best for us, the glow of whatever it is loses its appeal pretty quickly. We all have very legitimate needs. I'm not talking about the illegitimate needs that we sometimes want to call needs. I'm talking about legitimate needs. We all have legitimate needs. If you don't meet legitimate needs in a legitimate way, you know what you will do? You will meet those legitimate needs in an illegitimate way every single time. Amen. What I'm suggesting is it would be a whole lot better and a whole lot healthier for us to say to God, God, show me what the deficit is. Show me what the legitimate need in my life is that's not being met so that he can meet that need as only he can. And when that need is met, all of a sudden, I don't need to fill that need that's very legitimate in an illegitimate way. Is this making sense? Yes. You guys are making me earn my keep today. <gasps> so, do you see how a deficit in one area of my life makes me more susceptible to temptation? So what do you do? You ask God to reveal the deficit, and you ask him to fill it up. And then you take whatever steps are necessary to partner with him in filling the deficit. What do I mean by that? You have to do your part. Sometimes I think that we come to God and we realize that something's off. We realize that we're where we shouldn't be. And we realize that something needs to change in our life. And, and we ask God to do his part. And he's faithful to do his part. But sometimes we don't get victory because he does his part, but we don't do our part. Amen. We've got to do our part. What do I mean by that? Let me give you just a couple scriptures that I think will give you some of the ideas. This isn't an exhaustive list, but it's at least a start. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Okay? This is part of doing our part. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says this. Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles you. And run with endurance the race that is set before you, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, considering his example so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
So what's your part? Throw off the sin. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And run. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this, No temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man. And God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. Now, this, this has nothing to do with the sermon. I understand that. I'm going to get on my soapbox. I'll get right back off, I promise. I'll tell you one of my pet peeves in the church, okay? It's Pastor's Appreciation Month. I get to tell you my pet peeves. That's just the way it goes. Right, brother? Right, brother? Yes, amen. amen. This is how you can appreciate me, understand my pet peeves. This is a pet peeve of mine. Because I, I wish I had a penny for every time I've some, heard somebody misquote that passage. It's a pet peeve of mine. It just drives me crazy. So how many of you have ever heard, now if you've said it, I'm not, I'm not coming after you. I'm not coming after you, I'm not. Or you've heard somebody, and it doesn't have to be you, but you've heard somebody say something like this. Well, you know, God must think I'm really strong because he won't give me more than I can bear. And I'm just really going through it. I've got so much on my plate. And, and God must think I'm really strong. How many of you have heard something like that? They're quoting this passage that has nothing to do with what the passage is about. Has nothing to do with it. So we want to use that verse and say, you know, like the burdens and the circumstances of life, that God won't put us under more burden circumstance. That's not what the passage is about. He's talking specifically about temptation. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. That's the verse they're quoting. Has nothing to do with circumstances. Has everything to do with temptation. Okay, I feel better. I'm off my soapbox. Okay, I feel better. So what's the point? That even when you're tempted, that God's faithful, he's going to give you a way out. But our part is looking for the way out. Amen. That's part of running, right? Yeah. You got to throw off the sin and run. You, you have to look for the way out. God's going to be faithful. He's going to do his part, which is provide you a way out. But what good does it do to have a way out if you know that you're being tempted and you'll be like, I ain't struggling. I'm good. No, you're a fool. And you're only fooling yourself. You're certainly not fooling God. And you're not fooling us. Why don't you take the way out and get out? It's part of doing our part. Two verses have been running through my brain nonstop two weeks. Hosea 2.15 is the other one. Ecclesiastes 1. Um, and then Hosea 2.15. Oh man, this is so good. It's so good. This is what it says. Hosea is a great book, by the way. If you've not read the book of Hosea, it won't take you long to read it. And um, man, it's so good. So good. Here's 2.15. I will return her vineyards to her and transform. Here's the part that's so good to me. I'll transform the valley of trouble into a door of hope. Amen. Oh, come on. Come on. Sandy. About two weeks, well, maybe three weeks, you've been in the valley of trouble. Right? But you know what the promise of Scripture is? That right there in the valley of trouble, He'll give you a door of hope. Yeah, amen. Come on. 
come on. You know, we're, so we're talking about temptations, that when you're troubled, when you're struggling with something, when, you're, when it's coming against you, when there's some deficit and it's, and it's hard and it's painful and you're in a difficult spot, right in that place, he gives you a way out. What is the way out? It's a door of hope. Amen. Come on. Now you guys are starting to wake up. Right in the valley of trouble, he gives you a way out. What is it? It's a door of hope. No matter how dark things are, no matter how difficult things are, right in the middle of that, he gives us a door of hope. That's worth shouting about. I don't know about you, but I just imagine that there's somebody here who knows all about the valley of trouble. And if you're there, I want you to know that even there, that God is with you. And even in this moment, he is turning that very place into a door of hope. Amen. Well, I told you I'd be done before you are. I didn't even get through all of this first one. But I feel like the Lord said, it's enough. And I'm not ever going to be one to argue with him. Doesn't work. <laughs> so, um, we're going to pick up there. We'll finish. I'm not even done with the first point, but you don't want all four points, right? Somebody say amen. Amen. I mean, if we're not done with one, you don't want four times this, right? You don't want four times that. So we're going to call it quits. I'm going to have Danita come. We're going to play something. We'll sing something here in a little bit. Um, so let me kind of wrap everything up. Okay. I can challenge you to do something. Um, here's what I would challenge us all to do. First is just to acknowledge, you know what? We all have struggles. You have struggles. I have struggles. You're on the struggle bus. I understand your ticket to ride is different than my ticket to ride. But you have a ticket to ride the struggle bus, and in some way, you find yourself on the struggle bus. Why? Because Jesus said it is inevitable that struggles, that stumbling blocks, that temptations, it is inevitable that they will come. That means we're all in the same boat. That we all find ourselves on the struggle bus. But I am thankful to Jesus that he's given me a way out, that even in the valley of trouble, he turns it into a door of hope. Amen. And I have to do my part. I have to walk through the door of hope. But thanks be to Jesus, there's a door of hope even in the valley of trouble. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you, I want to be the kind of Person, I want to be the kind of church where it's okay for us to talk about our struggles. In fact, we encourage it because we know that when we talk about our struggles, we don't act on our struggles. And we help each other to be better and stronger. And we help each other to get through that particular temptation and be victorious over it so that we look more like Jesus. I want that for me. I want that for us. So, 
many of you would agree with me that it's safe to say today that in some way you have struggles? I have struggles. How many would say that it's safe to say that we probably haven't done as good as we could at talking about our struggles so that we don't act on our struggles, that we could do better? How many of you would agree that as a household of faith that we could do better at allowing this to be the safest place on the planet so that people can talk about their struggles? Amen. And that they know that we love them anyways. And in loving them and supporting them, even in the midst of their struggles, that we're helping them to get to victory. And how many would say, I am so glad for a God that in the valley of trouble gives me a door of hope. Amen. And I'm going to walk through that door today and tomorrow and on Tuesday and on Wednesday. And I'll just keep walking through the door of hope that God gives me. It's been a good day. Amen. And I think it'll be safe to say that when we leave, we will say, I was glad when they said unto me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. It's been good to be here, right? Yes. God bless you. We're going to sing a song. I have no idea what it is. <laughs> we'll sing something.